Hey, a quick favor. We are conducting an audience survey. We'd be really grateful if you could just take a few minutes and answer our survey. Please visit survey.prx.org slash scene to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org slash scene. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Season 5 is made possible in part by listeners who have supported our show and by a grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. When it comes to big changes in societies, Amy, you know, the kind that shift epochs, most of us go about our lives assuming they won't happen. Yeah, I think that's true. But they they do happen. Not, not often, of course, by definition. We don't have a new epoch every year or two. But for lots of reasons, it feels very likely that we're on the edge of dramatic change one way or another. Mm-hmm. Just think about what Max Berger said in our last episode about politics in the U.S. If you just were to step back and look at the U.S. as a country, it would be very clear, you know, the current constitutional arrangement is not long for this world. We are in real danger of tipping into full-fledged one-party rule and possibly fascist authoritarianism. One of our two major political parties is more or less united in trying to take us there. But at the same time, it seems like there's energy building on the other side, unlike anything we've seen in a long time. People demanding radical change in the direction of more democracy and a much more just and equal society. It feels like politically the U.S. is just like on a knife's edge. Yeah, it it really does. And then the other freight train coming through the tunnel, of course, with even more inevitability, is the climate emergency. The way I think about it, we can either have planned change or an ambush. But the change part, that's inevitable. On this question of change, there's a remark that makes the rounds from time to time from the writer Ursula K. Le Guin. She said it in a speech in 2014 when she was receiving a medal from the National Book Foundation. Ms. Le Guin was talking about art and the marketplace, and therefore capitalism. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Let's say it louder for the people in the back. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is Seen on Radio, Season 5, The Repair. Our conclusion, episode 11. I'm John Bewin. I'm Amy Westervelt. 
We started this season by exploring the climate emergency as a cultural problem. With the help of historians and other scholars, we told a 2,500-year history of how we got here, how the West evolved into the dominating extractive society that, among other gigantic crimes, drove the world to the edge of the ecological abyss. Last episode, we looked at policies we need to pursue in the short term, like now, to avoid the most disastrous outcomes of climate change. In this, our final episode, a different but related question. How do we need to change as a people, as a society, as a collection of societies? What's the cultural transformation we need to make to live in good health with the rest of the natural world and with each other? And there's that we again. Uh, For our purposes right now, the we we're talking about most is those of us who live in the societies that created the problem the West, the global North, with particular focus on the United States, because we are a U.S.-based podcast, after all, but also because, as we've pointed out here, the U.S. is the number one climate culprit. You know, I can almost hear some folks scoffing. Cultural transformation in your dreams. (laughs) That's going to take too long. I think one reason for that kind of skepticism is that the people with the most power have succeeded in convincing us, brainwashing us, into thinking that our society is structured in a way that's consistent with human nature. Mm. That individualism, self-centeredness, a focus on my personal short-term gain at the expense of future generations or other living things... It may not be pretty all the time, but that's just who we are as humans. Right. So any attempt to engineer a different sort of society based on, say, cooperation and caring is doomed to fail. It's unnatural, not to mention un-American. We've discussed that prevailing neoliberal take uh, before on Scene on Radio. But what if that is all wrong? What if we could make a cultural shift that represents a return to ways of being that are less contradictory, less forced, and more in harmony with who we are as human critters than the ways we're living now? Okay, John, this is highfalutin talk. We risk sounding like we've got our heads in the clouds. How do we come back to Earth and put flesh on these bones, to mix metaphors. Where do we start in imagining this massive transformation? Well, people who listen to Scene on Radio will have noticed we tend to follow the money. How do we get white supremacy? Well, it's a labor story. Patriarchy? It's about domination and control. And of course, that's also about money. What distorts and hobbles our democracy? Follow the money. Oftentimes when people talk about culture, we're thinking art, language, food, spirituality, anything but money or economics. But culture is about values, the stuff we hold dear. And Western societies over many centuries built a culture that cares tremendously about money and getting more of it. In exploring the climate crisis here in season five, we've talked almost nonstop about money how people with power and capital chose to accumulate more wealth and at what cost. So if we're going to talk about a cultural shift, isn't that a good place to start with our whole way of thinking about economics, including what we mean by wealth? 
So my last book was um, about GDP, gross domestic product. And I went to see Dirk Philipson. He studies and teaches economic history at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. I think what is so amazing about GDP is that, as far as I can tell as a historian, it's the only metric that has ever been universal. Right, so every country in the world, including presumably socialist countries, totalitarian countries, democratic countries, Muslim countries, follow that measure. Okay, Dirk says, maybe two countries don't care about their GDP, or claim not to. The totalitarian communist regime in North Korea, and Bhutan, famous for introducing gross national happiness. But yes, GDP, that go-to measure of a nation's prosperity and well-being. What does gross domestic product measure? Transactions in the so-called marketplace, the buying and selling of goods and services. You know, so the minute you begin to think about this, that of course means that it also does not measure a whole range of things that are very important to people from freedom to love to care to kindness, um, anything that is not marketed. If my wife were to stay at home or I stayed at home caring for our kids, it would not measure that. If we both work and then have to hire people to come in to take care of our kids, it gets measured. It also measures perverse things. So it doesn't measure the tree, but when you cut it down, it measures the lumber, right? John. You said it many episodes ago. Under capitalism, a thousand-year-old tree standing in the forest has no value until somebody takes a chainsaw to it. That was not just some groovy cultural observation. Under the sway of the West, most of the world has now embedded that value judgment into a key measure of our success or failure as nations. Powerful people gaze at the number and move money and policy in an effort to boost it. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Rick Santelli here with live breaking news, top tier economic releases. We're looking for not only claims, but also our first look at third quarter GDP. If you follow the news, you can hardly get through a day without hearing about it. In terms of GDP, 2.6 percent is what people were looking for. This is a disappointment, up 2 percent. Only up 2%. And of course, this is the... Few of us are immune to caring about GDP. Its performance does correlate loosely with factors that affect a lot of us. The number of jobs available, how my 401k is doing if I have one. And therefore, politics. Is the president succeeding at his most important job, growing the economy? His re-election may well depend on GDP. Trouble is, as Dirk Philipson points out, the hero in this economic model is the person who spends and spends. And on top of that spending, runs you off the road so his car and yours need expensive repairs, adding still more to GDP. In other words, this is the person who generates a lot of market transactions, but clearly does not contribute to our well-being. So part of the problem of GDP and how we measure uh, economic output is that this has now, it's not just a measure, it is also a, um, a goal. Capitalism has to grow, which means in effect that capitalism will do everything it can in order to create circumstances that allow it to grow, which means 
that it constantly creates artificial scarcity, that it turns every aspect of our lives into commodities that can be sold in the marketplace, including love and sex and information. Rather than just a measure, it becomes a goal, and as a goal, it is now driving us off a cliff. Demonstrably so. As you know, Amy, Dirk is one of a small but growing crowd of thinkers who've been making this central point. At the heart of the human-made ecological crisis is our addiction to economic growth. That's right. And these thinkers use a variety of terms and emphasize different points. Kate Rayworth, a British economist, developed a concept she calls donut economics back in 2012. She's since written a book about it and given hundreds of talks, including this one at Rodboud University in the Netherlands. So let me start with this donut, the one donut in the world that actually turns out to be good for us, because I've learned that pictures are powerful. Rayworth visualizes her economic model as a donut-like ring. The ring represents the sweet spot where we want all of humanity and our economic activity to live. So that the hole in the middle is a place where people are left falling short without the resources that they need for healthcare, education, food, water, housing, energy, mobility. We want to leave nobody in that hole, get everybody over the social foundation into the donut. But, and this is a big but, we cannot collectively overshoot the outer ring, the ecological ceiling. Because there we begin to tip our planet out of balance with our pressure on resources. We cause climate change. We acidify the oceans, create a hole in the ozone layer, create catastrophic levels of biodiversity loss and ecosystem breakdown. And As Rayworth says, the world's economies today are failing badly in both directions. Billions of people lack the basics of a good life. And at the same time, some of us are consuming way too much and inflicting catastrophic harm on our planet's ecosystems. Like Dirk Philipson, Kate Rayworth says, we're just disastrously confused about what an economy is for. I talked with one more thinker who's considered a leader on these questions. <clears throat> he was in a studio in Vienna on a hot summer day. Yeah, so it's, it feels like climate change, actually. Christian Felber teaches at Vienna University of Economics and Business. He's written 15 books, and he gives a lot of speeches. But that's my stodgy, conventional way of introducing him. When I asked him to introduce himself, he started this way. Sure. Um, I consider myself a holistic being, um, part of the greater interbeing. He's best known for his ideas about economics, but he studied Spanish, psychology, sociology, and political science. His keen interest in ecology traces back to a high school project studying the Amazon. Felber says with apparent pride that he is not an economist. That's just a too small fragment of the whole, but I am uh, an economic reformer, and at the same time a contemporary dancer and a lover of nature. Okay, so I'm getting the idea that Christian Felber, despite being a white man with reddish hair, and forgive me, but he's Austrian no less. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we can say it, and I think Christian would take it with good humor. On the whiteness scale, 1 to 10, he's a 10.5, um, <laughs> right alongside my white Midwestern behind. Despite that, he's questioned everything, 
Felber's best-known book is titled Change Everything. Here's the subtitle, Creating an Economy for the Common Good. It's similar in spirit to the well-being economy that Dirk Philipson advocates, and Felber shares a lot of perspectives with Kate Rayworth. Like them, he makes a fundamental critique of so-called classical economics, which states that each of us is a self-interested agent out for ourselves, and capitalism. Felber is not just writing and speaking. He's building a network of people around the world acting on the ideas he lays out, creating institutions designed to operate for the common good. But before we get to that, let's hear more about what he means by an economy for the common good. By the common good, he means what you probably think he means, an ethic of concern for the well-being of all. Maybe the common good is just um, the summarizing value of, of these other values, from respect to solidarity, to cooperation, to dignity, to sustainability. But the cultural value of the common good exists in all cultures. Maybe it doesn't have the same name. It's, it's called Buen Vivir in Latin America, or Ubuntu in Africa, or National Happiness in Bhutan. But there is no culture on this planet which does not know the lead value um, of the common good. Felber points out that many national and state constitutions refer to the common good, even the deeply flawed U.S. Constitution. It's in what is, I think, the very best part of the document, Amy, the preamble. We the people. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. There it is, the general welfare, the common good. This is Felber's point. Every country, every culture, every spiritual tradition knows what those words mean, and we hoist them up and salute them. And yet... We have designed and constructed an economic system which is not promoting and strengthening these values, but all the contrary, undermining them and propagating and, uh, and implementing a different value system, which is absurd. Why do we strive for egoism and utility maximization and acting one against the other, thinking that competition is better than cooperation and thinking that on a finite planet, endless growth is possible. <laughs> so it's, it's really, it's a sick, uh, sick way of thinking. Wow, a sick way of thinking. Those are strong words, but where's the lie? He's got other strong words. He calls it a cultural catastrophe that we in the West, especially have adopted an economic model that so egregiously violates our own deepest values. And as for Homo economicus, the economic man of econ textbooks for the past century, who makes decisions rationally, always with his own self-interest at heart. It's capitalist or capitalistic man, and that's, that's a psychopath and a sociopath. Okay. When Felber says that, he's not just spouting his own 21st century lefty opinion, is he? He goes back to ancient Greece to make the point that modern capitalist societies have made a horrific departure even from traditional Western values. And this may sound like a historical footnote, but I think it's important. As Felber points out, Aristotle, 4th century BCE, 
distinguished between economics and what he called crematistics. Crema what now? (laughs) I know. (laughs) If I came across this word in undergrad ancient philosophy class, I forgot it long ago. But stay with me. Economics, oikonomia, the word was coined in ancient Greece a century before Aristotle. Economics meant household management. Ah, okay. So more like the home ec class that a lot of us might have taken in school. So it refers to the work of running the home, the family budget, acquiring food, and the other household needs. Yeah, and in Aristotle's view, any exchange in an economic system should be about the actual value of things, not more. Always keeping in mind the well-being of everyone involved and of the wider community. So, Felber says, if you evoked homo economicus, the economic person, for Aristotle and the Greeks, who would have come to mind for them? The first economic person is a woman, and she was caring and cooperative and sufficient and respectful um, with other humans and, and with nature. Hmm. So, economics, as Aristotle understood it, was not about making money. In fact, he considered it wrong to take profits beyond what you need to cover your costs and to live. So let me guess, that's what Aristotle meant by that other word, crematistics. Exactly. Crematistics is the art of getting rich, of accumulating wealth. Aristotle called that an unnatural, dehumanizing focus for a human being. So, Christian Felber argues what we have in most of the 21st century world is not an economic system in the original sense of the word, but a crematistic system. And uh, we should distinguish these words, and we should not allow crematists to occupy chairs of economics. Mm. I'm with him in principle, but what would it mean to transform our society's economic life along these lines? What does an economy for the common good look like? Is it socialism? Well, it depends on what you mean by socialism. It's a big word that gets used in a whole bunch of ways. But he would say no. In, in my books, I try to explain that it's not about capitalism versus socialism. His economy for the common good is market-based, but Christian calls it an ethical market economy. So the current system rewards profit-making and, if anything, gives the advantage to unethical business people. Because you can cut your costs and make bigger profits by not cleaning up your environmental messes, for example, or by paying poverty wages, and so on. In the economy for the common good, communities would get together and decide, democratically, on a different set of incentives. In Felber's formulation, those incentives should serve five values— human dignity, solidarity, justice, ecological sustainability, and democracy. Wow, imagine that. The community draws up a matrix that includes the specific variables it cares about and concrete ways of measuring them. Then each organization, each company, nonprofit, whatever, tallies an annual common good balance sheet showing how they performed. So they gain points, for example, if they pay equal wages to people of every gender and ethnicity, if they deal honestly with their customers and their competitors, 
And if their products and their practices are good for democracy, hello, Facebook and Fox News, Mm -hmm. and good for the environment. They lose points if they don't meet those standards. And Felber says this is crucial. The results don't just go on a label or a website. The consequences are real. The community's laws, tax codes, and lending and investing institutions would reward enterprises with a positive common good balance sheet and penalize those that just extract maximum profits while paying unlivable wages or polluting the land and the atmosphere. Here's an example I like even though it doesn't seem to be about ecology, though of course everything is. It's all connected, of course. In 2021, the Economic Policy Institute says the average CEO of the biggest corporations in the United States made 351 times the pay of the typical worker in uh, his company. Yeah, you might as well go ahead and use that male pronoun since more than 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are dudes. Wow, 351 times. That's staggering. Yes, and this is of the this is not of the lowest paid worker. This is this is 351 times the average worker in the company. This ratio has gone up and up for decades. Researchers estimate that in 1950, CEOs in the US made about 20 times as much as the average worker. So let me guess, in the economy for the common good, the people in a given city or state could decide through that democratic process what is an appropriate ratio for the highest paid versus the average worker in an organization. 20 times, 100 times, 5 times. And businesses would lose points on their common good balance sheet if they violate that standard. They'd have to pay higher taxes or face other consequences. In a similar way, a corporation that's polluting or contributing to climate change would lose common good points. Its taxes would be high, investment in the company might be blocked. It certainly wouldn't be eligible for government subsidies, as oil companies have been for decades. And companies that act as good corporate citizens. Those who take care more than others and are more responsible and sustainable, they pay less taxes and they get priority in public procurement or in economic promotion programs or that they trade more freely or they get a cheaper finance from banks and stock markets. Of course, common good banks and common good stock markets. Given those advantages, these businesses could lower their prices too and gain an advantage in the marketplace. So again, it's still a market, as Felber envisions it, uh, just one with the incentives turned on their heads or sideways or something. It's easy to imagine some people listening to this and screaming, wait, you're going to start meddling in the free market, telling companies how to behave? But of course, there is no unfettered free market. In every capitalist country, laws regulate what businesses can and can't do. The tax code creates boatloads of incentives and disincentives. Banks use criteria when deciding whether to give a loan and so on. Government policy props up entire industries because we think they're important for some reason, which doesn't necessarily even mean they make something that anybody needs. It often just means they make money and create jobs. So the question is not, should we have guidelines for how corporations and other enterprises behave? Should we put a finger on the scale to help some businesses? We do that. The question is, what should the incentives be? 
and who should decide. Yeah. I don't remember having a say as a citizen about how much corporations can pay their CEOs or whether oil companies should get billions in subsidies, even though they're destroying a river in Nigeria or lying for decades about the threat of climate chaos. John, as we said, Christian Felber and his organization are trying to get people to actually put these principles into practice. That's right. After a decade of work, he and his colleagues have recruited members in 35 countries. As of late 2021, almost 800 businesses have signed on as common good enterprises, drawing up common good balance sheets. Several dozen cities have become chapters incorporating these principles into their work, mostly in Europe, with just one in the U.S. so far, Boulder, Colorado. But of course, it's voluntary so far. And there are other expressions of this general idea companies that declare their own commitments to doing business ethically and sustainably. Projects like the B Corporation system, in which a nonprofit certifies companies as B Corps if they meet certain criteria that benefit their employees, communities, and the environment, not just their shareholders' wallets. That example I gave earlier about executive pay, Portland, Oregon is trying a modest version of that. Since 2016, Portland has levied a special tax on companies based in the city if they pay their executives more than 100 times the company's median pay. The tax brings in several million dollars a year, but apparently it isn't steep enough to change those companies' practices. So why is this idea still fringe? Why don't we have an economy for the common good? Christian Felber says that question brings us back to our lack of real democracy. If people had the direct choice between different models of the economy, they would already today vote for an economy for the common good um, rather than for capitalism or socialism. There are surveys that confirm that. In Germany, one of the surveys is that uh, people were asked if they prefer to hold on to GDP or replace it by something like a common good product or a gross national happiness. The result was in Germany that only 18% of the population uh, voted in favor of continuing with GDP and two-thirds of the population, they would prefer to replace it by a common good product. Lots of opinion surveys show deep dissatisfaction with the current economic order. In a 2021 survey from Axios and Momentive, 54% of young Americans held a negative view of capitalism. But the really eye-opening finding in that survey was that the number of young Republicans who thought favorably of capitalism had declined from 81% in 2019 to 66% in 2021. This is something I find really striking about Christian Felber's approach to an economy for the common good, his emphasis on democracy. It does seem that what he's describing could be called a kind of democratic socialism or social democracy. By the way, Amy, the economy for the common good would outlaw investment income, no more making money from money. Companies can only pay people who work for the company. Whether you agree with Christian about the details or the labels, what he's asking us to imagine is an economy that we the people design. And we design it so it serves and feeds people and other living things, not the other way around. 
along with a growing number of people, he's saying we could and should demand that kind of world. John, I'm thinking back to those many months when we were in the planning and research stages for this season and our struggles over the series title. I think The Repair was your first choice from the start. And after wavering and leaning toward other titles along the way, we landed again on The Repair. Yes. For one thing, we all, and this includes our terrific story editor, Cheryl Duvall, We all wanted a title that offered hope, or if not hope, courage, to borrow from Kate Marvel, whom you paraphrased last time. We knew we wanted to talk about solutions and how to respond to the emergency. And we knew we wanted to build on the previous three seasons on this show and make connections throughout between the world's ecological crisis and those huge systemic power structures and injustices that we had explored in seasons two through four. Let's go to the tape. This is us introducing episode one. Yes, over the last three seasons, you and your collaborators have told the story of a patriarchal white supremacist society with deeply anti-democratic structures in place. A society built first and foremost for the extraction of wealth, by the relative few at the expense of millions of exploited people and the natural world. Yeah. So what might all of that have to do with our ecological crisis? Right. Other than everything. (laughs) So now here we are in the finale talking about a cultural transformation, starting with a profound overhaul of our society's economic life which could fix a lot of those structural inequities that break along lines of race and ethnicity, gender and class. But repair also means talking about history, acknowledging past crimes and making them right, or at least doing what we can to pay some of those moral and economic debts. During the season, we've talked about climate reparations or loss and damages payments between nations. And last time, you spoke with Tamara Tolls O'Loughlin about reparations for environmental racism in the U.S. For this episode, I spoke with this gentleman. Um, I'm Olufemi Otaiwo. I'm the author of Reconsidering Reparations. I teach philosophy at Georgetown University. Femi Taiwo's work focuses on social and political philosophy and the anti-colonial Black radical tradition. His book, which we both got a chance to read, is brand new, just coming out about the time this episode does at the end of 2021. And clearly in this episode, we're trying to go big or go home or go big and then go (laughs) home because... Christian Felber wants to change everything, and here is how Femi Taiwo describes what he set out to do in reconsidering reparations. It is basically an attempt to re-say something that I think was common sense in a bygone era and that people still think, but um, 
is not quite as fashionable as it was in maybe the 60s or 70s. But that is that the task of racial justice is to rebuild the world, to literally rebuild the world. In your conversation with Taiwo, he said what we said at the top of this episode. Big change is coming, like it or not, because of the climate emergency. Again, either we're going to handle it, making deep change in how we do almost everything, and soon, or climate chaos is going to handle us, and not gently. So looking at that reality through the frame of racial justice, Femi talks about the 500-year-old global economic order that we've examined on this show, most directly in our Seeing White series. Some call it racial capitalism. Taiwo prefers to call it global racial empire. He writes this, The aqueducts that contain and discipline the continuous motion of the past into the future were laid in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Wealth flows in one direction and pollution and its impact in the other. Whatever else our world is, it's a distribution system, right? It's the reason why wealth ends up over there and poverty ends up over here. It's the reason why other bad things that aren't necessarily themselves wealth but have to do with wealth um, end up in some places rather than others, whether it's incarceration rates or toxic waste. And that system is not incidentally related to our social and political system. It is our social political system, right? When we're talking about redistribution, we're talking about reconstituting the basic political relationships. If we don't transform our basic political relationships, if we don't tear down and rebuild those aqueducts, our responses to the climate crisis will be just as colonial and exploitative as the global racial empire we're living in today. And we're already seeing that happen. If repair means anything, it means countries that built their wealth through slavery have huge moral and material debts to pay. At the same time, settler colonial societies, the U.S. certainly included, committed crimes against indigenous peoples too enormous to ever make right. But we could begin by giving land back and learning lessons about how to live with and on the places we inhabit. In order for us to heal our landscapes or even heal our environment, especially as we continue to experience climate change, we kind of have to look at um, solutions in a holistic lens. And that's also including that indigenous science. Jessica Hernandez has a PhD in environmental and forest sciences and teaches at the University of Washington Bothell. She grew up in Los Angeles. Her father is Maya Chorti from El Salvador, her mother Zapotec from southern Mexico. We devoted an episode to efforts around the world to build indigenous conceptions of nature into Western legal systems. In her work, Hernandez tries to combine Western and indigenous science. 
my training in the Western sciences kind of showed me, especially as a young person going through this educational training, that a lot of the knowledge that was taught in those classes was knowledge that my dad had already taught me. The only difference is that my dad did not have that Western terminology that is attached to certain things. Like, for instance, something that I was really always interested in was like biomechanics. And I think that biomechanics was one of my specialties doing marine science where I was always interested in the way that fish, you know, aquatic species moved. And I think that my dad would teach me a lot about animal behavior, especially fish behavior, because he was a fisherman. And also he would teach me about the biomechanics of the fishes, like why fish move a certain way. But obviously it was taught through that traditional knowledge and that traditional languages that when I... Was Jessica's new book is Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. There's a story behind that title. Yeah, so my father was 11 years old when he was, you know, forced to decide whether he was going to join the military from the government side of the guerrilla. Hernandez's father became a child soldier when the Salvadoran Civil War broke out in the late 1970s. Government soldiers were trying to conscript him, so to avoid fighting with them, he joined the indigenous rebels. While the guerrillas were training him and other young recruits in the jungle, Jessica says... Her father found refuge in a banana tree. He made friends, is how she puts it. Like, he would go and play with the banana tree. He would climb the branches. A lot of his other other children were scared of heights. So he would also bring down bananas for the other children who were scared of heights because my dad was kind of fearless, right? Because he had... But government forces um, found the training camp, and one day, the planes came. Bombs fell nearby. So my dad, being a child, being scared, he ran under the banana tree where he used to play. And he saw a bomb kind of drop on the tree, but instead of it igniting, he saw how the leaves kind of wrapped it and the bomb did not, you know, ignite. So the bomb was kind of dormant. He explains how he saw his short life flash before his eyes. And he thought that he was going to die, right? And he was seeing the gruesome scenery that the bombs were creating. It seemed to her father that his friend, the banana tree, had saved him. And he was actually, he was in disbelief. It kind of seems like it's something that's taken from a cartoon or this, like, dream. But in reality, it was something that my dad experienced. And I think that one of the lessons that he learned and, you know, that he passed down to me is that nature protects you as long as you protect nature. Amy, I looked up the etymology of the word repair from Old French and Latin to mend, put back in order. It also means to return, to go home. In episode one, we talked about this modern, short-sighted, aggressive, exploitative relationship with the rest of the natural world as a recent departure for our species. After two or three hundred thousand years of human history, the West developed extractive capitalism, a core aspect of global racial empire, just a few hundred years ago. So it's kind of uh, funny, isn't it, to notice which end of the political spectrum claims the word conservative. In many ways, most of us would not want to go back in time. 
But when Jessica Hernandez and other indigenous people talk about land back, they are talking about several kinds of restoration. The restoration and recognition of tribal sovereignty, the return of stolen land and public land to the stewardship of the peoples who lived on and with those places long before the settlers arrived. And the dismantling of white supremacy, which is also a recent arrival, along with our settler ancestors. Remember in our Pachamama episode when Annette Sykes, the Maori activist in New Zealand, talked about wishing that colonization would get back on the plane to the UK? Mm. This is one of the ways indigenous folks sum up the land back movement. It's not that all settlers need to go away, but colonialism does. Here's Jessica Hernandez. Land back is just basically meaning that indigenous peoples are given the political power to govern natural resources, to steward our landscapes, to make decisions that are related to our natural resources. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to dismiss or deport people who are not indigenous to these continents, but rather kind of work in union and also kind of teach one another on how to better steward our lands. We cannot go back to the ways that we once lived because, you know, colonization did happen. Colonization still has impacts. So I think that it's finding a medium, meeting each other halfway to be able to heal not just ourselves as indigenous peoples, but also heal our landscapes, um, heal other indigenous peoples who indigeneity has been fractured. And I think I talk about the black community, African-Americans, and how their indigeneity has been fractured because of slavery, right? They were stolen from their indigenous lands and brought across the Americas to work for free on stolen land. And I think that, you know, when we talk about land back, we also have to make room for our black relatives to kind of also reclaim the indigeneity that has been fractured or erased because of slavery. Land back is kind of like this holistic way of healing everyone that's within the Americas. But at the end, letting indigenous peoples of those lands kind of steward the land and kind of heal our landscapes as we continue to face climate change impacts. Let's come back to that question of what's possible whether people across the globe can mobilize to remake the world. Femi Taiwo, the Georgetown philosopher, points to an example from recent history, the middle of the 20th century. I think we've already seen the kind of mobilization that's going to require, and at least on that level, we're in the enviable position of doing again something that we know can be done. So what's he referring to, the civil rights movement in the U.S.? Well, no, <laughs> though that movement was somewhat related to the one Femi is talking about. I was thinking, too, in the interview, what is this great mobilization? But of course, that's because I'm a white American and a lifelong consumer of more or less mainstream American media, which focuses almost entirely on the U.S. and the so-called developed world. Femi is a child of Nigerian immigrants. That's a clue. 
Ah, okay. So he's talking about the national liberation movements of the 1950s and 60s that pretty much ended formal Western colonialism across Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. Prior to the Second World War, the British Empire alone controlled 25% of the landmass and population of the globe. When the United Nations was founded in 1945, it had just 51 members. By the 1970s, there was closer to 130 members of the United Nations. What I'm trying to communicate by that is the sense of how much of the world, how many people were involved in the struggle for national liberation and against the former formal version of colonialism. That took transnational organizing, much of it led by students and labor unions, writers, people donating money, and more. True enough, Femi says, the anti-colonialist movement did not achieve everything that people in the global south hoped for. Neo-colonialism lives on, as we've pointed out this season. Under independent rule, many of those countries have deep problems. But... But it was a move towards justice. You know, I'm not aware of a larger and more seismic shift in global politics and human history. There has already been a planetary-scale movement for justice, and not a completely successful one, but a successful one. And we need one of those, right? If we're gonna, if we're gonna meet the challenge of climate crisis in a way that builds justice rather than reconfigures injustice. In the last chapter of his book, Reconsidering Reparations, Femi Taiwo writes a fascinating and truly moving essay. He calls it The Arc of the Moral Universe. He's evoking Martin Luther King Jr., of course, who said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. As they often do with Dr. King, people misunderstand the quotation, believing he was claiming that it's impossible to stop history's move toward justice. But in the same speech, he explicitly said otherwise. Human progress, he said, never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. In his Arc of Justice chapter, Taiwo ponders what he calls the perspective of the ancestor. Profound change can happen quickly, but often that sudden change happens after long, slogging, seemingly hopeless struggle. In 1492, Columbus lands in Haiti. What follows? The genocide of the indigenous Taino people, followed by centuries of enslavement until death, for Africans on the island's sugar plantations. The glorious Haitian Revolution erupts in the 1790s. That's 300 years. That means that people's parents, 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 all lived under this system of domination. One response to that kind of timeline, Taiwo says, is fatalism. My measly efforts won't bring a just world in my lifetime, so why bother? 
But Taiwo argues for the opposite, the perspective of the ancestor who looks beyond her own lifetime when thinking about what's possible. From the point of view of a human lifespan, you know, maybe certain things are possible and certain things aren't, and maybe historical circumstances decide which things go on which list. And there's only so much that we can do about that. But from the point of view of many generations' lifespans, the things that are possible become much larger. And, and rather than looking at the immense scale of our challenge as something to shrink from, we can look at the immense scale of our challenge as something to grow in response to. And I think that's the way to look at it. You know, we as individuals and groups and organizations that are alive now, we have responsibilities to expand what's possible for the people who are kids now and the people who aren't yet kids. And whether or not that means us personally seeing the promised land, there's responsibility and value and joy even in doing our part of this multi-generational project. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. When he's talking about what he calls revolutionary patience, Femi says he's thinking of global racial empire and the grossly exploitative form of capitalism we now have. Eradicating them may take multiple lifetimes. But he agrees we can't afford that kind of patience when it comes to the climate emergency. Planet Earth and its atmosphere, which we have altered so disastrously, operate on their schedule. And the clock is ticking loudly. Still, though, even when it comes to the climate crisis and our response to it, there's a way in which the perspective of the ancestor feels really important. I agree. Uh, I asked Femi to read a couple of sentences from his book that, I confess, choked me up when I read them. We should think about our ancestors, but we will win and lose our own ethical battles based on what we do for our descendants. We are defined by what kind of ancestors we choose to be. Mm. On that powerful note, that's Seen on Radio Season 5. Done. It's been so, so good working with you on this, Amy. Thank you. It's been amazing, John. I feel like, uh, I feel like we've covered this immense breadth of of stuff that I obsess about constantly and it's been it's been a delight to work through it with you. <laughs> this season of Scene on Radio was conceived, 
produced and mixed by me, John Bewin, with a whole bunch of reporting and other indispensable input from Amy Westervelt. Our script editor, Cheryl Duvall, did heroic work from start to finish. Other reporting by Nita Roshida in Indonesia, Ugochi Anyaka Olwigbo in Nigeria, Tarek Ahmed in Bangladesh, Victoria MacArthur in Scotland, Polyglot Barbershop in Ecuador, and Lyndall Rawlins in New Zealand. Big thanks to the composers of this season's music, Lily Hayden, Kim Carroll, Chris Westlake, Leslie Barber, Cora Mirren, Fabian Almazan, Goodnight Lucas, Alex Weston, and Maytar. Music consulting and occasional production help from Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. A shout out to the fantastic communications team at CDS, Liz Phillips and Mara Guevara. Whitney Baker built our website, seenonradio.org, where we post transcripts, among other stuff. Special thanks to Jess Jiang for creating those transcripts. The director of CDS is Opeyemi Olukemi. Seen on Radio is distributed by PRX and comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.